listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. The other day, I was walking out of the house, and Joanne had the TV on. There, there's this station called Start, and they play all these old shows, like, from the 90s and 2000s, that she really didn't watch. And it's funny, because they're not in HD. But I'm walking out, and I'm watching, she's watching uh, In Plain Sight, and there's a uh, two-time Cooper Talk guest, Peter Honorati. And he's doing a scene with my guest today. And whenever, I've, you've heard this before, whenever Joanne sees someone who's on my show, she goes, oh, Steven. Like today, she goes, Spencer Garrett was on a medium. I just saw him on the medium. So my guest has been, I think, on every show. And I'm a fan. And my guest is Steven Weber. How you doing, Steven? I'm good, Steve. How are you, man? I'm good. So, so you're in Chicago. You're working, right? Yep. You're working on Chicago Med? I'm working on Chicago Med. Grateful and happy to be working on that lovely show. What's it like for you when you're out of town? Because you're in L- you live in L.A. How long are you in Chicago for, and how do you get acclimated? I have to say that I'm, I've been feeling a bit like Willie Loman lately because uh, <clears throat> I'm on the road. And, uh, and that's something that happens, I guess, if you're lucky enough to be a working actor. You end up on the road a lot. Uh, first of all, I love Chicago. Uh, the first time I was here really was probably in the mid to late 80s. I did a TV movie with Helen Hunt and, uh, and uh, got my first dose of Chicago. And then for this show, I started last February, which is like being on Pluto, okay, in, in Chicago. It's so cold. And it's not, it's not romantic or kind of snugly cold like New York or Philly or, you know, or Maine or something. It's like, it's bone cracking. It's cold. It's pretty bad. Uh, but then I was able to stay on the show through spring and summer, and it's glorious here. And now I find myself back in, uh, in, in the dead of winter, and I go back and forth to L.A., and it's uh, starting to take a toll. It's, uh, it's kind of tiring, but again, no complaints. Happy to be waking. Now, say. how has COVID affected you? A lot of actors, you know, this affected where... They, they had a shoot in Canada, so they go up and they're quarantined for two weeks. And, and when they say quarantine, they're quarantined, like they can't go anywhere. Have Because you're someone who works all the time. You're an actor who's always been working for all these years. Did COVID affect your career at all? Well, I, I theoretically it did. I mean, first of all, I, I never know when I'm going to work or when I'm going to be unemployed. Uh, but it just so happened that my unemployment coincided with COVID. So for about uh, almost a year, I would say 10 months, I was unemployed. Uh, but I guess it was acceptable because everyone was in lockdown and there was quarantine, etc. On the set, um, they're very strict about COVID protocols. We test every day. Uh, we're masked until we're told to take the masks off. And... Um, they're, I mean, very credible and very necessary in order to keep the show up and running. You know, we've had people who, uh, uh, on the crew, who have uh, contracted it, and uh, it's almost like what's it? It's like what is it, the British Square? It's like one, the, the first row shoots and then they fall away, and then the second row comes in. That's kind of what it is. Maybe that's what it's like on a on a Dick Wolf show. Um, uh, it's just. Uh, it's like an army. It's like a small country. And so they've taken every, every uh, possible step to keep it up and running. But look, as it affects me personally, 
you know, I, I go along. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a regulation guy. I, uh, if the company says do this, I'll do it. And, and in this case, I see that it's, it's actually, you know, um, efficient and correct to do that. Uh, you know, I know a few people, a couple of uh, people uh, in the beginning that actually died from COVID. So, you know, it affects me because I'm aware that it's out there and that it's, it's potentially uh, lethal and dangerous. So, you know, I, I think it's affected everybody. It's affected everybody. Obviously, it's affected everybody. So... How did you get your career started? I know your your parents were in entertainment, but it always it always uh, you know you don't meet a lot of entertainers whose parents were in entertainment. It seems like you know where I grew up, no one was in entertainment. But I mean, how did you get? Yeah, your father booked comics, or tell me tell me how this all happened. Yeah, my father was um, a theatrical agent, which is a fancy way of saying like you know he was a, he was an agent of Borscht Belt comedians and. Uh, and singers, and you know, you're from New Jersey, Philadelphia, so there were there were clubs like the, like the Cherry uh, Latin Casino. Yes, that's right. And and um, and so, and in fact, his father was a guy named Willie Weber. Willie Weber was uh, is historically significant because he was Jackie Gleason's early manager and Don Rickles' early manager. Before that, he had been in the uh, the mafia, the Jewish mob in New Jersey. So it's a logical progression, I suppose. Jewish mob agent, and uh, and so it was sort of in the air for me. My mother was actually a, a nightclub singer, and so that whole kind of um, atmosphere growing up was was a little spiced up with backstage stories and seeing my dad come home from. Uh, uh, various uh, nightclub gigs and uh, as a young kid I got a chance to go backstage a couple of times um, but you know that aside I mean that obviously was was a contributor but like you say you know there's so many people who are in the industry who don't have a background don't have a family kind of lineage in it uh, I wouldn't say it, it detracted from it I mean but it, what it did do was it gave me a, a um, an idea that there's a seamy underbelly to the industry <laughs> It's glitz on one side, and as soon as you go backstage, it ain't so pretty. Um, so I had that as an early at an early age, and that's you know, and I got started by trying to get my parents' approval, I guess, doing imitations and acting up and being a wise Alec, wise Alec, smart Alec, and uh, and, uh, and then I ended up I going to uh, the high school of performing arts um, in New York City becoming more serious and then I went to a great school called State University at Purchase Purchase New York and where there are a lot of great actors and a lot of great uh, uh, you know theater designers and lighting technicians not technicians lighting designers so it was a school for the arts so that's how I got going now once you got out of school how long did it get you take you to get on track until you got an agent and you started working did that come quickly to you or did it take a little bit uh, in my case, it was fairly quick. Uh, as it happens, <clears throat> I didn't even graduate from Purchase uh, because I got a job uh, beforehand. And, um, and that got me my SAG card. And I had an agent even before I left college. Very rare. Um, and that wasn't to say that I was on easy street after that because after that first job shot uh, in, in the course of, I don't know, three weeks or so, four weeks, I was back where I was, and in fact, I didn't even have a diploma. Not that that would have helped me, you know, 
theater arts. So I, you know, I did what all the actors did in New York back in the uh, the eighties. I, you know, I walked the streets and I slid my eight by ten under doors and I read backstage magazine and looked for open calls, casting calls, and um, I auditioned for everything and anything, and had odd jobs. I was a I was an elevator man in a uh, in a in a uh, uh, health club. I was a short order cook. I was a uh, uh, what else? A dishwasher. I did all these things uh, to support myself. I lived with a couple of roommates in uh, Long Island City, and uh, and then I started getting lucky, small parts here and there, and um, little little indie films. And then I I started doing theater <clears throat> within about a couple of years. And I worked at this really tiny, great repertory company, which I don't think is in existence anymore. It's called the Mirror Repertory Theater. And they did really beautiful, credible productions. Uh, Geraldine Page was the artistic director, and they had a lot of great actors in it. And I, I got a job as one of the uh, you know, little background people, and I, that's how I got started. How important do you think theater is? I mean, I talked to so many actors. The people have been around for a long time. They seem to have all, a lot of them have done theater. Now it's... You know, no one really does. I mean, I was talking to someone about this. They said no one really does theater. That's why the English actors are getting a lot of parts, because they're all in theater. How important do you think theater is, especially for you? How important was for you to grow as an actor? I mean, it was the most important component in uh, whatever ability I have, uh, and uh, that's questionable. And uh, But uh, I, I really think it depends on what kind of, Theater, uh, what kind of career you want. Um, it's be, I'm not being flip when I say that pretty much anybody can be a celebrity. Anybody can be an actor. And I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way uh, because I get a lot of pleasure out of watching people on TikTok and, uh, and uh, a lot of people who aren't professionally trained but who just know instinctively how to entertain and make people laugh, you know, on this. Um, that said, I think there's something essential and incredible about having a theater education because, and, and the key word here is education, because it is like learning about other cultures. When you're doing a play, you're learning about other cultures. You're learning other um, languages, practically. You're you're doing historical research quite often. You're you're immersing yourself into something that isn't just flip or easy as pressing this. Um, you have to apply yourself in a way that you know goes deeper than um, than uh, a lot of other um, I don't know entertainments might say. And I may it may sound I may sound snobby. I mean, look, I, I love doing theater, and I've done. My fair share of it. I haven't done nearly uh, uh, as as much as many actors who have never been on television have done. But there's something quite incredible about it. I mean, it, it's a difference between you know climbing a, a wall in a rock climbing facility in a gym and you know climbing up El Capitan. You know, and, and I know it's hyperbolic, but yeah, there's there's a big difference between. I want to talk about your TV career, but I want to talk about you were on Broadway. What is that like for an actor? Is that like going to the big leagues as a baseball player? 
I mean, yes, it is. I mean, Broadway is synonymous with everybody's, every actor's or performer's dream of success. Um, and like I said earlier, there's a seamy side to that. Uh, one of the funny ironies about a lot of the gorgeous theaters, wherever you go, whether it's in Chicago or New York or Philadelphia or Atlanta or San Francisco, or whatever, is that they're beautiful on the inside. The seating is lush. It's ornate and baroque in terms of des the design. But the uh, can I curse on this? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the dressing rooms are shitholes, Steve, <laughs> and uh, you know they're 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 varying levels of shitholery. But man, they are crappy. And when I did my first Broadway play, where I was uh, signed on as an understudy and uh, assistant stage management, which meant I had to move furniture, was in a production of The Real Thing on Broadway, which had been running by the time I got into it uh, at least a few years. And uh, I was, of course, uh, on cloud nine as I walked into, I think, the, the El Royale Theater. Uh, Royale Theater. Royale Theater, El Royale. And, um, and, but when I got inside, it was like being in a basement in an old building. <laughs> You know, with radiators or radiators, whatever you call them, you know, things knocking and paint peeling and God knows how many species of vermin running around, not counting the actors. Thank you very much. Uh, so it is everything you want it to be and more. Um, I, I, excuse me for talking and talking and talking. Here's the thing being on the road as I've been, it's pretty isolating. I don't talk. You know, it's like, I'm by myself a lot. So. Thank you for pulling me out of my... Uh, what happened? I'm, I'm having a stroke. Oh, thank God. <laughs> no, my, my, my backlight dropped. Oh, God, here it comes. Here it comes. So it's, it's fascinating. You know, it's wonderful. And the thing that makes it wonderful isn't the building, you know. And, uh, it sounds corny, but it's the connection with the audience because they're excited too. You know, people don't really come to theaters just dressed in their shorts and their kind of wife beaters. Of course, some people do. But for the most part, it's still special. Number one, it's so goddamn expensive that, you know, I mean, you want to make it special. Um, so, but it, yeah, it's wonderful. Broadway is a wonderful place. Theater in general is great. I mean, I'll even see a show that's, and enjoy, I'll, rather, I'll even enjoy a show that's not particularly my cup of tea. And I'll enjoy it because I see the work that's going on on stage and backstage. I mean, I did The Producers in uh, 2002, and as phenomenal as it was in front of the curtain, backstage, behind the curtain, the labyrinthine orchestrations of stagehands, technical people, moving stuff, it, it was amazing. That people need to see. Now, I want to get to your TV career. Uh, you know, you worked, you worked a lot. You were in a soap opera you played JFK Jr. I mean JFK or young JFK, so I call you Jr. But I want to talk about Wings because to me, it's one of those things. Whenever you talk to someone, everybody loved Wings. It's like you. When I said, "Hey, Steve Morris," everyone's like, "Oh, we love that guy." Like no one says, oh, "That guy's a dick," or they don't go, "Oh, Wings sucked." People don't say that. But how did Wings come about to you? Because it it was such a good series. I don't know why it's not in syndication. I can never find it. But it was such a well written. And just everyone was cast perfectly. Did you have to audition a lot for that, or how did you get that part? Yeah, we went. Uh, everybody on the show went through the normal 
uh, procedures, which entails doing one audition and then passing that test and then doing another audition, passing that test. And eventually, uh, more and more people more directly involved with the show see your, I guess at the time, tapes, your videotapes. And they start pairing you off, pairing you with people. And it got to the point uh, where we had to do a screen test, which wasn't as romantic as it sounds, where you know, you're know you pampered over by makeup people. And in this case, you're brought with uh, all the other actors who have made it this far to a room, which is a little amphitheater. Uh, it was in, uh, I guess, at NBC. And, uh, and in this room, in this case, in the case of this screen test, was Brandon Tartikoff, who was the president of the network at the time, and dozens of um, executives, creative executives, casting people, etc. Watching and judging me and Tim Daly and Tom Hayden Church and a lot of, and, and there were a, a bunch of other actors who they then paired off to see if we had chemistry. And, uh, and I was a real smartass at the time. I mean, I guess I still am, but at the time I was really feisty and, you know, and, and so I did some ad-libbing, which, uh, you know, wasn't really, uh, the type of thing that you're supposed to do, but I just did it. I had a kind of a carelessness or carefree attitude, uh, that I guess fit their idea of the character. And, and that's how I got it. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty wild. But by that time I... This is 88 or 89, 88. You know, I've been working professionally for five years, um, which is not a lot. Uh, but I'd, you know, been to probably by then hundreds of auditions. And I found my rhythm. And it's a rhythm that was different for this project than it was maybe for something that was more dramatic, uh, something more comical. And, uh, uh, you know, and so this was more comical. And so I just let rip and got the job. Now, what is it like when you book something like that? Because you're knowing it can change your life. I mean, financially, you know, it's something that you're going from job to job, and all of a sudden, it's a series. And then you sit there after the first season, and I think you had a good time slot because at that back at that time, there wasn't a lot of TV networks. It's not like now. So, what was that first? What was that first year like for you? Because all of a sudden. You're getting recognized, and you know, you played a skirt chaser in the show, and I'm sure people may have sat there and confused you for that guy. I mean, what is it like with a guy, you know, you're probably, what, 29, 28, 29, 30 when you get the part. What is yeah. that like when you see you're, you're thinking that my life might really change? Well, maybe this is uh, a key to uh, my, my, my psyche, is that I, I never really thought of... Uh, things in that way. I, I rarely, uh, often to uh, often to my dismay, I, I did not look to the future like that. I didn't weigh things, and so on the one hand, it didn't, you know, it didn't hold me back. It didn't, it didn't weigh me down. That type of thinking. Oh my God, this is big, and I just took it as it came, and. Um, and enjoyed it, um, but I, I didn't, in a way, I didn't take the whole event as seriously as maybe I should have, you know, because on the one hand, yeah, you know, it, it can be a life changer, or it can just go away like that, too. I think I was very loose with how I viewed 
the show. I mean, I, I took myself seriously in it, but was mostly having fun, if that's an answer to your question. I, 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 uh, I, I, even as a young guy, I, I didn't have dreams of glory or dreams of becoming a star or any of that stuff. I just enjoyed it day to day, which some people might think is actually the way to do it. But looking back, I, I think I could have afforded to take the opportunity that was handed to me a little more seriously and, um, and wade things beep, uh, wade things in a way that, I don't know, that may have led me down a, a, another path later on. I, I, I hope I'm not being vague, but look, it's, it's a strange thing. Listen, you know, everybody has, and I say this everybody, I'm sure most people, have a fantasy of becoming a star. You know, that's such a trope that's been in everybody's, that's been in our history. Um, somebody's discovered or, or hard work gets you there or whatever. Um, I just found myself lucky enough to go down this path. I was really kind of a lucky bastard in a way. Now, did, did people start, what, what, what is it like when people started recognizing you? Plus, you're a good-looking guy, so you probably had, you know, women going, oh, oh, you know, oh. I mean, what was that like for you? Because it's just, it's not normal stuff. I talked to Scott Valentine, and he said when Family Ties was huge, he had some girl who wanted like him to sign her breasts, and he's like, I don't even know you. I'm, I'm a very good-looking guy, and uh, men, women, small animals, they gravitate to me. Uh, I, I don't, I, I can't help it. Uh, look, I mean, you know, Scott Valentine. First of all, even the name, his name matched his looks. You know, he was pinup, uh, pinup material. Um, and and I, I suppose I, I always did, if I dreamt of anything, it was, you know, being chased by a mob like the Beatles were chased in Hard Day's Night. And I'm sure a lot of, a lot of guys had that kind of fantasy. Uh, the reality is that it's very affirming. It's fun. Um, and I, I can't say that it doesn't make me feel good if I get a nice table at a restaurant <laughs> because of it. But also, I've learned that there's a, you know, again, there's a seamy side to these things. Maybe that's the theme of our, this, uh, our, our talk tonight. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's fun. It's interesting. But I really don't think I took it to the point where I took, I, I thought, wow, I really am great. Or I really am handsome. Or I really am this and that. I, I always realized that it was a function of being on TV and that, it, you know, Louis Black used to have a, a, a bit that I think he called the bowl of shit network. That if you just put a bowl of shit on TV and just kept the camera on it, it would get huge ratings. You know, and, and listen, uh, if you're on TV, people know you. People know you, and especially in those days when there were only four major networks. Um, the fact that um, you say that Wings wasn't in, isn't in syndication, it was never in wide syndication. Um, I'm, I'm just an actor, so I really don't have uh, that uh, facile of, a, of an intellect. But I have to say that uh, I think the reason that you don't see Wings that much now is because uh, in the years after it was on, it was shown so heavily on the USA Network, USA Channel, which I don't even think is around anymore. And so it was, in effect, um, on cable and shown all the time as opposed to, let's say, a show like Seinfeld, which is seen on a variety of stations all over the country, nay, the world, uh, and every time it's shown, somebody somewhere, Larry David, gets paid a lot of dough, and so 
you know, I think Wings just kind of ran it. They just ran the hell out of it, and that's it. Now you can maybe see it on, I think it's on maybe Netflix or something. You have to order it up. But uh, listen, it was a great experience, and and I think a, a good show. You know, it was never a sexy show. There were always far sexier, edgier shows around it, whether it was Cheers or Friends or ER or or you know whatever or Seinfeld for that matter. We were always a kind of a middle of the road show, but I don't think we were ever corny particularly. There was actually some. Uh, wit and complexity in the writing, but as characters, we were as you know white bread as can be. I mean, literally. I mean, we the extremely white show. I got to say. Now, I, I, I had to watch something before I interviewed you. I had to watch the scene from Single White Female because that's that's classic. Like everyone, I mean, how many times do other? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Tell me about the shooting of that. Just. I mean, it's just now it's different because of special effects, but you you get hit in the face with a stiletto. I mean, what was, what were you, I mean, was that during, that was during your wings time, right? It was just at the start of it. So probably I would say 1990. So yeah, it was right at the beginning of it. Uh, so for people who might not be familiar with that, Single White Female was a, a thriller with a, a Bridget Fonda, Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, who were fantastic in it. And Bridget Fonda's character uh, advertises for a roommate because she breaks up with her longtime boyfriend, played by me. Uh, and when that happens, she needs somebody else to, you know, I guess, I don't know, help her with the rent or something like that. Jennifer Jason Lee answers the ad. She's really cool. They hit it off. Spoiler alert. Turns out she's a complete psycho. And to the point where she, she imitates... Bridget Fonda's look and bearing to the point where I'm trying to get back with Bridget. And one time I come over to the apartment and I see Bridget in bed and I, I, I sneak in as, as I recall, it's been ages and I sneak into bed with her. We begin to have sex. And then I realize, Oh my God, this isn't Bridget Fonda. It's Jennifer Jason Lee character. That is. And once I, uh, and there's a scene where she's, uh, performing mouth love on me. <laughs> I don't know what I can say. Uh, and uh, and this is the, the clue to the character, another great guy that I've played. I realize that it's not the woman I'm supposed to be having sex with, that it's this crazy woman midway through the sex act. Of course, I let her finish, you know, because I'm a guy. And, uh, which is despicable. And, uh, and then afterwards, I, I try to justify it. I'm, trying to, I'm getting my clothes on. I'm getting out of there. And I accuse her of being a complete lunatic. And she takes her shoe, her high heel, stiletto heel, and she smashes it. And it goes in my eye, and I'm dead. Well, I mean, they did that with a series of cuts. And they took a heel that they cut the – they took a shoe, they cut the heel off. They glued it to my head, and I lay there on the floor. That was it. But the, the sex part of the scene – was uh, fairly, for the time, fairly racy and sort of graphic. You didn't really see anything, more the suggestion of something that was there. But look, you know, there's a whole crowd of beefy, uh, you know, grips and technicians around while I'm trying to be, I'm trying to do my moves on them. <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's not easy. And, you know, there's a part of you that thinks, what do I want to do here? Do I want the audience to see... Stephen Weber's love moves, or do I want them to see the characters' love moves? And are they the same? Are they different? Oh God, just just 
make it stop. Basically, it's it's really it's it's pretty awful. It's awful. <laughs> no, your career has been so diverse. I mean, you had so many different roles, and it's 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 weird when you look at your IMDb that you know from Wings, okay, then Wings ends, and then you end up in The Shining. I mean, it couldn't be anything the the more polar opposite. I mean, it says one thing that people respect you as an actor but how did i mean what did you sit there when someone said oh yeah you're gonna you're gonna play nicholson's character from the shining i mean how did that how did that thing come up well once again i didn't apply critical thinking to it uh, <laughs> i just uh, there was an audition i went to it i did well enough to get it and that was it i really didn't give that much thought of it through it to it and um again maybe i should have uh even though i'm Mostly proud of that uh, that performance. Some of it not so proud. I mean, I, like I say, I, I, I'm just sort of going from job to job. Uh, I'm not sure I had a, a through line that I was conscious of. I'm not sure that I had goals in mind. I just found myself on this road, and I thought, okay, I'm on the road. Here I go. I'll just keep going. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was interesting. I mean, look, I... I I, I, I didn't even think that Jack Nicholson was the person who I was uh, emulating or, or doing, not emulating, but just, you, you know what I mean. Get another question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, okay, another question. Voice, uh, voice work. All dogs go to heaven. You, you get into voice work. Now, that's something that, you know, people I talk to love voice work because you can show up in your pajamas. You can say, yes. blah, 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 blah. You don't have to deal with a bunch of people. You don't have to deal with a big crew. You can sit there. You can eat a sandwich in between, you know, and when you're sit waiting. What did, once again, was that something you fell into or was it something in, in your mind you said, I want to do voice work because I've been on the set for so long. I want to eat a sandwich in between takes and have no one make me go to Crafty. That was my motivation, Steve. I was hungry. Um, actually, that was the one thing that I really did consciously pursue that didn't uh, present itself to me with, I guess, with the relative ease with which the, the other stuff did. I'd always had a fascination with radio, old-time radio. I had records, you know, long-playing albums when I was a kid of old radio shows from Jack Benny to... Orson Welles, <clears throat> and and I always loved the idea of that. I, I had books about the olden days of uh, radio, and I loved the whole aesthetic. Of, you know, people at a microphone. I just really loved it, and and so I think I had to do some dubbing or ADR, you know, or, or dubbing for a film, uh, which is where you, if, if the sound is no good when you originally record it, you go into a studio and you re-record it. And I somehow, I, I don't know how I made the first connections, but I started doing uh, looping and dubbing for foreign films. I ended up working with a guy named Peter Fernandez, who was responsible for bringing um, uh, Speed Racer to the United States and the Japanese cartoons uh, and had done plenty of voices on those cartoons, Speed Racer and Gigantor and Simba and all these cartoons uh, that uh, we maybe possibly grew up with, you and I. And uh, and so I started being called in because I needed a younger voice to uh, loop foreign films. And that's how I kind of got started doing that. So that eventually when I began working more and more in TV, uh, the opportunities presented themselves and I pursued those more uh, aggressively. 
and ended up yeah doing a couple of seasons of that lovely series uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven and I, I I've done a bunch of cartoons over the years and and now I do primarily audiobooks. I've done a bunch of audiobooks by the great writer uh, Harlan Coben. And uh, and in fact I did a I did a really long audiobook of Stephen King's It, uh, which has won awards and um, and that I find that to be yes, it's easier in some respects for all the reasons you said, even the eating of the sandwich. However, the eating of the sandwich comes into play and turns out to be uh, a bad thing because your stomach starts growling and it's a nightmare. <laughs> So uh, it really is. You have to stop for like twenty minutes while you digest, and it's embarrassing. Tell me, tell me about reading of books, because I would think that would be, you know, you have to probably be so quiet, you probably can't move in the booth. And it's, do you actually read the book, or do you have a teleprompter? I mean, how does that work? Because it has to be, it's a book. So like, I just, I, I get Audible, so I listen to a lot of books, and there was one yeah. I was like, and eh, they sort of, they, they sort of sucked. You know, they were going back yeah. and forth. But what is it like when, like, how long is the day for that? And how long does it take you to read a book? Is it, I mean, well, except for the one that was really long by Stephen King. Right. Uh, which took two weeks. Uh, this, uh, you know, when I started doing audiobooks, this was pre-iPad, pre-iPhone, pre-Apple. And so you had scripts. And so you had to take, every time you reached the end of the page, you had to take a moment, you know, to, to turn the page. And it was an audible and a sound, so you had to, and then continue on, even if it was in mid-sentence. You know, you had to find a way to do it silently so people wouldn't know, here you're turning the page. Now it's all done uh, on uh, an iPad or a tablet, and you just sort of scroll silently. And, um, you know, it's interesting. It's an interesting process that I, I like to think I've gotten pretty, pretty decent at. Um, the thing is that I don't pre-read. I should but I don't. So basically you're hearing cold reads, which mostly works. Um, because when I was in college, we took a, um, kind of a, a, a we, there was a book called the art of interpretation, which had to do with people getting up and reading from books. You know, Charles Lawton used to do uh, presentations where he'd read out of the dictionary or read poetry or read plays off a lecture. <clears throat> and there's a, I guess a technique involved there. And I think that carried over into doing audio books. Um, you know, frequently you can get into, I get into trouble if I, if I haven't reread it. I, I, I generally know what the genre is. So I, uh, you know, I have, have a feeling for it, but occasionally you're doing three pages and you realize, Oh, this person's had a lisp. Oh, this person is Australian. Great. So then you have to go back and, and redo it. It doesn't happen that often, but occasionally. Now, what was it like for you in pilot? One more thing. It, it can take, we do like um, six hour days, seven hour days, six hour days, and it's, and that can take, so I can do a book in now maybe three, three and a half days. That's it. Continue. I was going to say, pilots. What was your pilot seasons like? I know, I mean, I know eventually you had a show called The Weber Show, which to me would be great because I always knew if I wanted to be an actor, I would always want to be the and guy, like and Steve Cooper as the crazy Joe, right. the neighbor. That's who I want to be. What was it in the beginning, after Wings, were you getting a lot of pilots or were you going, I mean, were people just giving you pilots? Do you have a development deal or how did that work? I mean, this was the, the 90s, which I only, I always think, oh, it's only 10 years ago. No, that's 30 years ago. Uh, so close to 30 years ago, uh, the business was a little different. It was still in its, you know, in, in its classic kind of, uh, uh, 
it was a classic system. What am I trying to say? It was the old. It was the old style of doing things where there was a specific pilot season, and the actors would often get first look deals at uh, at studios. And I got a, a few of those. Uh, and and out of one of those deals came the aforementioned Weber show, which I don't really talk about. It was originally called Cursed. Uh, and that was a that was a tough. Ah, it was a tough experience in many ways, but um, you know, I I listen. I still auditioned and had to audition, and but occasionally things would come my way, and I had done a few pilots which were not picked up, and that was par for the course. You know, I mean, you, it was a gig. I got paid. If it went great, if it didn't, okay. I felt confident that I would find more employment elsewhere, and uh, that was the case. But it's up and down. You know, it's. Feast or famine. So, uh, uh, me and my friends, my contemporaries, I guess, always looked forward to pilot season because it was it was a new opportunity to get work and to hopefully do something that's worthwhile. Tell me about some of your friends. I know Spent. You're good. For your friends with Spencer Garen. He always he talks about the uh, what is it, the 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 character actors dinner society. Wow, that's like cats. Yeah. You know. Now tell me. I mean, I always think like if someone's visiting. Hollywood from let's say Iowa or anywhere and they walk in the restaurant and see all you guys I mean they must be shitting themselves like oh my god this is a mother load how is how do you how do people react to you when they see a group of all very noticeable and successful actors I mean first of all it's a very flattering uh, depiction I, I mean the reality is that you know we've all we've all reached a point the people in this particular group and there's there's this at least a dozen people that, uh, that are the core of the group. Mostly it's, it's character, friends, friends who know each other. Um, the reality is that we're all, we've reached a certain age and a certain bearing where we don't walk in, you know, flashing jewelry and, you know, like Robert Downey Jr. And, you know, out of the, people open doors for us. We sit and we wait and we wait, you know, we sit at a table, we wait at a bar, we get our table. You know, it, it's not that special. It, it's, it's, uh, it's not, it's not a huge event. It is to us because the whole idea of this group was so we can hang out with each other. You know, it becomes a little solitary after a while. There's not a lot of community out in Los Angeles, I've found, in the industry. The way there would be doing theater in New York or Chicago or any of those great cities. Because the actors are all together. They're all together in the theater. They leave together. They go to their bar together. But here, here in L.A., you're mostly in your car, and so you miss each other. And so we made a concerted effort to kind of dine together. Look, yeah, so some people notice us probably because we're a little too loud, and we sit at a table for twelve, and um, and you know we hadn't seen each other, and we we didn't do it for a long time during COVID. We're starting to do it more, and we do it with uh, at places that have outdoor uh, seating capacity, seating situations. Um, look, it, I, I, I would be disingenuous if I said. That it's not, this doesn't feel good to get that kind of attention. Clearly it does. But it's not something that we seek. You know, it's, uh, we, we go to these restaurants because the food is good. And because uh, and it's, it's a good central location for everybody to come to. Because everybody's scattered all over the place. Now, you played a lot of different characters. 
I like you on the episode of Monk. Did Tony Shalhoub call you and say, hey, you want to come do this? I mean, because you're just, it's, 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 first of all, that's such a great show. I mean, my wife always watched it, and I was like, wow. I mean, Tony Shalhoub is just amazing. And you're such a prick to him in that show, and it's great. But did he just call you and say, hey, I want you to just be a prick to me. Come on set. Yes. He said, instead of being a prick to me in real life, come be a prick and get paid for it. Uh, um, yeah, he, that was, that was a call. That was, a, that was a call. Look, I mean, I think Tim Daly had done an episode too. You know, look, that's one of the perks, especially if you're, if you're on a show like Monk, which is critically acclaimed and beloved. And, and you know, let, let's, let's take a Tony Shalhoub moment here. He's fucking great. You know, he's a great actor, this guy, and he's nuanced. And to make it even worse, he's a great guy. <laughs> he's a really lovely man. Um, so uh, he was lovely enough to say, hey, do you want to do this crazy part? It's like Howard Stern. Always loved Howard Stern. Sure, I'll do a Howard Stern type. And I, I did it. Me and Danny Woodburn, who's a great character actor, played Mickey on, uh, on Seinfeld, who was, uh, what's his name? Uh, you know, Kramer's foil. And, uh, and so we, we became friendly on that too. And uh, yeah, it's great. Look, uh, mo- most of the jobs I've had have been really fun. Some have been exceptional. A few have been crummy. But, you know, again, that's the, that's the, that I'm lucky enough to have that kind of, uh, that kind of resume, you know. I mean, there's so many, there's a lot of actors, and I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm fishing around to be, I'm not being humble here, but so many artists and performers and actors out there who haven't had the kind of lucky breaks that I've had. There's people, on, you know, walking outside right now who are probably so amazingly talented, but, for some reason, went down a different street than I went down. I'll just say that. What is it like when you go on a set, and it is a crummy set, seeing that you've worked with a lot of people, you've been on, you know, you've worked in this industry, does he ever just sometimes gets a little, like, pissed off, like, oh, wait a second, you know, this guy, this guy's being a jerk, and, and he shouldn't be a jerk. I've heard people that say someone, like, on number five on the call sheet is being a real jerk, and then you're like, uh, you calm down. What, how, do you, how do you handle that if you go on a set and someone's a jerk to you? Uh, I've had only a couple of experiences where I've seen people, noticeably actors, who've behaved badly. You know, it's it's like it's like going to a restaurant and somebody being rude to a waiter, rude to somebody who's serving you. And and I, I, I haven't seen very much of that. The reality is that people aren't forced to work in this particular industry. It's a privilege. And uh, and look, not all of the positions are are fun. Uh, some can verge on <laughs> humiliating. Uh, but, you know, everybody more or less chooses to be there. And it's, it's actually, in a, in a weird way, it's good. It's real blue-collar work. Uh, some, people, some people demonize Hollywood. It's so stupid. The, the majority of what they see or what is Hollywood is built on the backs of people who are doing heavy lifting, who are technicians, who are carpenters, who are cooks, who are drivers, who are, in other words, they're the kind of salt, you know, the, the salt of the earth. You know, you see the glitzy part and the actors get a lot of the, you know, the, most of the credit, but holy smokes. So, so it's actually rare that somebody's acting like a dick on stage. You know, for the most part, people... You know, people people mind mind their p's and q's, and and if it ever if I'm ever asked for advice, I never 
will deign. I will never presume to give a young actor acting advice because I'm still trying to figure it out myself. But I will say without hesitation, be nice. What should I do? I say, be nice. Be nice because people are working their asses off. And also, it works for you. If you're nice, people want to work with nice people. They don't want to work with schmucks. They really don't. And they don't, they don't unless they really have to. You know, and of course, we've all heard stories and instances about people enabling drug habits and alcoholism and bad behavior. And of course, there's been lots of stuff in the news about people who've made, you know, the wrong choices and have been invasive and other people. And, you know, luckily that doesn't happen all over the place. If it did, there would be no industry. Now you're you're very diverse. I, I liked you in uh, Murder in the First. That was that was that was a good role, and that was something that you know. Do roles like that get you excited when you sit there and you can flex a dark side? I mean, how how do you approach as a, do you approach every role the same, or when something's darker, you can you can be more into that? I mean, look, I, I, I wish I was an actor of uh, Daniel Day Lewis's depth or Denzel Washington's depth, and I'd be able to answer that. Know, with great kind of uh, detail. But the, the fact is that I, I found myself playing all these douchebags uh, for about 15 years. And, uh, you know, I don't know how I, I approach them and just trying to make it make each character sound plausible and sound like I was speaking the lines and not corny. You know, when I grew up, I, I loved, always loved character actors like the character actor Dining Society. I always loved the darker characters. I always loved the villains, the broken shambling people were, were way more interesting to me than square-jawed leading man types. Uh, so I gravitated to those, uh, I mean, after doing Wings mostly. And uh, uh, But uh, look, I mean, I guess I just try to make it as truthful as possible, each role, whether it's a comedic one or a, or a dramatic one. I mean, depending on the, the style of the movie, you know, for instance, you know, I did Dracula Dead and Loving It, where I did a horrific English accent. But that was as broad as you can be, and yet it, it, it was it fulfilled what the the, the the promise and the premise of the film. You know, I, I think in a, in, a, in a good way that you know, saying uh, then then say uh, um, how to get away with murder. That was a you know, that was a different tone to it. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't bring the same kind of style or energy or dynamic to that that I did to Dracula Dead and Loving It. Now, what was it like uh, when you did Curb? Because you mentioned Larry David earlier. I mean, is, is Curb as great as everyone says it is? Uh, in two words, yes. Um, yeah, it is. It's as great as everybody says it is. It's. Uh, I had done a film with him. We did a. I did a film with he and Craig Bierko called Sour Grapes, which was a not widely seen and uh, I saw it. Not, not not widely appreciated film. I think it's an absolutely perfectly funny film perfect for what it was but unfortunately it was it was being compared to Seinfeld and everything else at the time so it sort of went its way that said um, working on Curb was fantastic because you're working with all these people who are kind of um, at the at the top of their the tops of their game and uh, and for a guy who's known to be so prickly and sour and and uh, volatile, actually, Larry is uh, one of the kind of nicest, coolest, best-adjusted people, not just for a comedian, uh, I've ever met. Now, Mom, 
great cast again. I mean, how's that to work with heavy hitters? I mean, as an actor, you must love that because you walk into something where, you know, you know it's written well. You have Alice and Janney, and it just, it's great. What is that like? Like, do you sit there and walk onto a set like that and be like, oh, man, this this is going to be really, really fun because it's, I, but I got to bring my A game because it's the best. Uh, all of what you just said. It, it's really fun, but there's a degree of... Uh nervousness that I, I, I have because all these people are so great. You know, Alice and Janney I've known for years. I've known Bill Fickner for years. Uh, Anna Faris I, I had not known, but I thought she was spectacular. And um, and so, uh, you know, I, again, flattered and grateful to be on this, this show, to be working with these people. You know, I wish it gone on longer. Um, you know, the interesting thing was that that role and that show, which is not just funny, really kind of addressed, not kind of, absolutely did address um, uh, alcoholism and addiction and, uh, uh, you know, dependency. And uh, it, it was really interesting, beautifully done, I think. Um, the writing was great and all that. But, of course, the performances were, were fantastic. So in, the one, in one respect, it was great fun to be on that show but i realized ah i have to really i've got to i've got to pay attention here you know they're not just they're not waltzing through it they're they're, they're giving their all so i better give my all you know the, the character i was playing was very much a straight man um and i was i wish that it'd gone a different way but i was just happy to to have done it now you also you also acted with the rock i mean what's that like he's bigger he's bigger than life i mean what what is it like being on a set with the rock i mean he's one of the biggest stars in the world. I mean, when you go on this set like that, you're just like, it's the rock. Do you just sit there and go, ah, it's just you like, do you say it like, hey, Dwayne, or do you say, hey, rock? I mean, what do you call him? It's like being on set with a, a fucking superhero. You know, it, it's, uh, he's, he's bigger than life, and yet he's life. That's, he's actually, he's real. Um, going on the set of Ballers, you knew that there was a lot of money around. There was a lot of, uh, what's the word, man? It's like a lot of style around, a lot of, a lot of testosterone. Um, but it wasn't toxic. You know, it wasn't to toxic masculinity. And that's a pretty masculine goddamn show. I mean, <laughs> and, and I guess, I guess that's because he is not a toxic guy. He is, a generous, uh, open um, person. And of course, you're at first surprised. I was surprised. Here's a guy that was a wrestler who's such a good actor, such an open, warm guy. I mean, he made me feel so, uh, uh, you know, welcome as soon as I came onto this set. My mother had been a huge fan of his, even pre-ballers, you know, my mom. Jewish woman from the Bronx was like over the moon with, with Dwayne Johnson, even when he was doing, I think he did the Hercules movie or the Scorpion King, I think. And she loved him, loved him, loved him. And he, he took a picture uh, and did a video for her. And then she came out to the set at some point, they took pictures together, everything, everything regenerated in my mother. She loved him so much. So uh, he could not have been nicer. You know, and it occurred to me that this, 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 a lot of the people who've done professional wrestling are actually really good actors. 
probably for the same reason that we were talking about the English are good actors, because they do theater all over the place. The bulk of their training is doing theater, live theater, in hundreds of houses, if not more than that, all over Europe and England. Well, guess what? These athletes are performing plays 200, 300 nights a year and improvising and having to do routines. Yeah, it's, it's like a cartoon, but brother, it's work. You know, these guys, John Cena and, and The Rock and who else? I mean, all these, they, they're, they're gifted. They're really good. So it was, it was surprising. It was uh, uh, inspiring in a way. And yeah, we, we talked a little bit. He's, he's a gifted improviser, this cat. You know, it was, it was great. Real, look, how, look how excited I am. I mean, he's a, he's an authentic superstar that I was able to kind of meet and work with a little bit. We know earlier you said about mom. Mom dealt with alcoholism. We also did thirteen reasons why. Did yeah. did you is that did you take that role because you knew it would make a difference, or was it just a job offer? I mean, what was that like? Did you know it would make an impact that it did? No, I mean, look, it was a, it was a job offer. I mean, my my uh, I, I wasn't aware of the. Uh, was it a book? Uh, 13 Reasons Why? I think it may have been. Or, 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 or I don't know what it was, really. But uh, it was a job for me. And the reason why I guess I'm so unaware is that, <clears throat> you know, I'm I'm, a, I'm one age. And then suddenly my kids who were in, um, I guess they were in uh, elementary school at the time, they were a different age. And that's when 13 Reasons Why and, and high school, junior high school and high school, that's when this, uh, th- that, that um, uh, show was on. And I think it was a book, I guess. But... Uh, so look, I didn't know it would make that impact. I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't speak to that. And besides, my role was was fairly uh, minimal. You know, I played the the principal of arguably the worst high school in the history of the world, uh, and uh, but a great show to work on with fantastic. I don't want to say just young actors, but I mean, compared to me, they were young. Really excellent actors. Really beautiful writing and directing. I mean. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not being disingenuous when I'm, I'm, I'm speaking so highly of all the people involved in these things. I mean, so much work goes into making a TV show that you, you have to somehow acknowledge that. This was a particularly uh, complicated, complex show, very dark. And, uh, and I can't say that I wasn't um, impacted by it because a lot of the subject matter had to do with kids of a certain age. And I'm the father of two now. They're, they're older almost 19, once 21. At the time, they were in their you know, early, mid-teens, and man, you know, those, those subjects are, uh, are hovering in the air every day. You, you, want, you want your child to be safe. You want them to be sane. You want them to be protected. And this show, 13 Reasons Why, presented a world where none of that was guaranteed. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it gives you something to think about. Now, you've had, you know, through your career, you've had a lot of great roles, is there any roles you turned down that you wish you didn't, or is there any roles that you auditioned for that you didn't get, and you're like, God damn it? Mostly the latter. I mean, I I, I, I rarely, if ever, turned down a role that I was offered, but I I, uh, I certainly auditioned for a bunch of them. I auditioned for a lot of theater roles that I never got, I, movies that I never got. I remember I really wanted to, a role in Flags of Our Fathers that I think uh, Clint Eastwood had directed. I, I really worked hard on that, and you know, nothing happened. I, I, I'd done that a bunch of times. I went up for a lot of roles in Oliver Stone films, and 
you know, as a young actor in New York, you know, think about it. Any movie that you saw young-ish actors in the 1980s, I auditioned for, you know, whether it was, I want to say, there's a movie called Vision Quest that Matthew Modine was in, you know, or um, Born on the Fourth of July, and I think Frank Whaley got that role. And, you know, and that, that's par for the course, you know. I, I, part of the... I rarely felt disappointed if I didn't get a job because that was part of the landscape of the actor. And plus, harkening back to what I was talking about, community, it, you, all the actors, all your buddies, all your friends and rivals, and there was no real rivalry or nobody was really competitive that I ever saw. We were all doing what we wanted to do. We would see each other at these auditions. And if you were fortunate enough to have a few auditions a week, you'd see them, uh, you know, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at, at these various um, uh, casting places. And, you know, I got, to, I made great friends. I made some lifelong friends. Campbell Scott is a friend of mine. Um, and Spencer Garrett, you know, like a, a bunch of these people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I wish I'd gotten some, some roles that I auditioned for. But look, uh, if I had, maybe we wouldn't be talking. Now, well, now, what, you know, just a few more questions. What what are the highlights of your career? Like, if you could sit there and say someone said three highlights of your career, maybe an obscure role you had. I mean, if someone, because you have over 170 credits on IMDb, and I know what, winding it down to three is like, well, when someone says to me, can you name your favorite Springsteen song? I go, no, I can't even, I can't even name my favorite Springsteen album. It depends what mood I'm in. What, what are three roles, just really roles that you just love that were, to you, highlights of your career? Uh, again, it, it's, you said it all. I mean, it's hard to boil it down. Um, I have really great memories from doing the producers in New York. Um, you know, it was a complex time for me personally, but it was, it was also a fantastic experience to be in that show at that time. Who was the uh, other lead when you did that? Uh, Brad Oscar. We'd taken over for Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. We were the first people to take over for it. You know, and that's a whole conversation in itself, believe me. Uh, it was uh, a tactical choice on the part of the actual producers of the show. <clears throat> I don't know what they were going for. I mean, obviously, I was glad to, you know, and I had to audition for that, believe me. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe in retrospect, they would have gone another way, but that's another story. But... Um, uh, another role that I really think of a lot, but probably only a few people know of it, was there was a show that was on TV called uh, on TV. There's a show that called Party Down, and Party Down was a I think it ran for two seasons. Uh, uh, Adam Scott, Martin Starr, Ken Martino, Lizzie Kaplan, um, Ryan. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't his name. Great actor, um, and. And, that, and I played a, a, a kind of a Slavic gangster with a lazy eye that I pinned, like I, I glued the skin on my eye so there was like a weird flap. And it was so much fun and people seemed to love it. So that was uh, another kind of a highlight. But then look, also working with Mel Brooks um, was and remains the, probably the greatest thrill of my life. You know, he was a guy that I grew up with listening to his albums and uh, watching his movies, The Twelve Chairs and the original and best producers with Jerome Mostel and Gene Wilder. And, and then I, I got a chance to work with him and, and know him. 
came to dinner. Uh, you know, we went out to dinner with him and, and, and Bancroft, for Christ's sake. You know, they came to my 40th birthday. I mean, they, they, it, it was unimaginably blissful. Uh, so I, I would have to say that was really the, the highlight of, of all the things that I've done. But I have to also say that I've had so many, so many jobs where people have been so great and kind and I've had so much fun that it is hard to whittle it down. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time tonight. I, I enjoy talking to you. Now, what's coming up for you besides besides Chicago Med? Do you have any other projects coming up that you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, first of all, thank you for letting me vomit all over the place. I just, I, I even I was talking. It's happening now. I'm just saying, shut up, shut up. What the hell are you? Why are you fucking talking so much? I don't care. Um, uh, no, both mostly just Chicago. Uh, Matt, um, that's what I'm doing right now. I don't have anything <clears throat> planned beyond this because I don't, don't really know how long this will go for me. Um, at true to form, I'm I go from square to square like a I won't even I won't even designate myself uh, you know a chess piece like a checker <laughs> you know like that. And uh, so we'll see what happens. I, look, I, I'm I'm pretty happy. I'm. I, I, I live in LA. I've got a nice house. My kids are great. My family's good, and that's kind of all it is for me. I, I'm, uh, you know, times are tough all around for people, and you know, I'm just uh, just trying to just trying to do good and be a be a decent human being. That's about it. Well, I want to thank you, uh, people. You got to follow Stephen on Instagram, but you got to make sure it's the right Stephen because there's Ray Abruzzo gets like oh. six. He gets like six. I mean, I, I laugh. I'm like. I always see him post on Facebook. It's like I'm like, dude, how many people are impersonating you? I mean, it's unbelievable. How many? How many have? Imper- how many have done fake Stephen Weber accounts that you know of? I've only seen maybe two. But Ray, who's a wonderful actor, you know, but and he'll he'll agree with this. He's not Elvis, you know. He gets the most. He gets a. He has the most faux accounts of anybody. Forget it. You know, I mean, yeah, Ray Russo, I get it. You know, follow the real guy because, you know, his Instagram is great. He rides horses. It's all soprano stuff. It's earlier roles of his. He's great. But, I mean, Jesus, what what could anybody possibly gain by impersonating me or Ray? Or I, I don't understand what, what that is. I've only seen a couple of them. And believe me, I'm not long for Instagram. I think it's like a... It's like a toxic trough online. I don't think I'm long for it. It's it's well, easy to get in trouble. You used to be on Twitter. Are you still on Twitter? Nah, I've been off Twitter for years, off Facebook. I was getting into fights with total strangers. Like, what the hell is that about? You know, like, and and it's like a rage aggregator. What the hell am I doing? I just need to. I just need to like go make my dinner, go to the bathroom. You know, and to go to sleep and wake up. But that, that's all I need to do. I don't need to get involved with people who I'll never meet or will never meet me. So <laughs> people go follow Stephen while you can. Okay. And now when you type, you search Stephen Weber, it's got one B and it's got a blue check next to it. Now, if it's a guy who pronounces it like S-T-E-P-H-E-N-W-E-B-B-E-R-E, it's fake. Just so you know. It's fake. So people, I think it's called actually Stephen Weber. I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, follow him. Follow me on Instagram at CooperTalk1, Twitter at CooperTalk. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. You can find 898 episodes on there. Uh, email me, Cooper, CooperTalk.net. I said that. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. <laughs>